Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm William Rogerberg, a member of AFSCME. Your support helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. And I'm Anna Ham, a proud member of the Radio New- Labor Radio News Collective because I have a nose for news and I like to pick it. Today we will learn about the Martin Luther King Community Dinner, hear about more organizing at Starbucks, learn about letter carriers' efforts to protect themselves in Milwaukee, get a rundown of upcoming union contracts, and much more. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. From 4.30 to 7 p.m. on Friday, January 12th, the 34th annual MLK Community Dinner returns this year for the first time since the COVID pandemic began. The Community Dinner kicks off at the King Holiday Weekend with fellowship at the Gordon Dining and Event Center, 770 West Dayton Street. Keith Steffen interviewed Ruth Brill, the chair of the Martin Luther King Community Dinner Committee. When did you first start working with the Martin Luther King Dinner? I believe I joined the coalition in 1986, and I would have started with the dinner within the first couple of years of that, and Leah Zeldin was in charge of the dinner at that time. We used to have it in church basements, and we used to gather food donations from the community and cook it ourselves with volunteers, but we outgrew the church basements, and now we have moved to first Gordon Commons and now Gordon Dining and Event Center. Gordon is located where? The address is 770 West Dayton Street. That's right across from the Cole Center, is that correct? Exactly. What time will the dinner be held? 4.30 p.m. until 7 p.m. That's Friday, January 12th, right? Yes. And what is on the menu at this point? We will have fried chicken that's salted and baked chicken that's unsalted. We'll have mashed potatoes, gravy on the side, biscuits, corn and green beans, mac and cheese, sweet potato pie, and beverages. Coffee, milk, lemonade, water. What will the program be? The program is going to be the music makers, youth that are just learning to play their instruments. Usually it's stringed instruments. They are affiliated with the Wisconsin Youth Symphony Orchestra. The youth symphony students help to tutor the young ones. The public Martin Luther King dinner has not been held for the last three years due to the pandemic. How many people do you expect? We're planning for 400. We'll be serving buffet style, and there will be sisters from the AKA sorority to greet people and to help people if they need help carrying plates or if they need someone to go get them beverages, things like that. If people want to volunteer to help out, who should they contact? Please contact me. My name is Ruth Brill. My email address is nutloaftuesday at yahoo.com. And as a Nancy, U-T-L-O-A, as in Frank, then the numeral two, then the letter S is in Sam and D-A-Y. So nutloaf with a two S-D-A-Y, nutloaftuesday at yahoo.com. 
Additional events commemorating the Martin Luther King Day weekend include the MLK College Readiness and Success Summit at 10.30 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. Saturday, January 13th at Madison College Goodman South Campus. Contact the College Station for registration. The I Have a Dream Scholarship Dream Ball is hosted by Women in Focus from 6 to 11 p.m. on Saturday, January 13th at the Wisconsin Masonic Center. Contact Women in Focus for tickets. The Urban League Outstanding Young Person Recognition Breakfast is scheduled for Sunday, January 14th at Edgewood High School. Tickets are available through the Urban League. An ecumenical worship service will be held at 4.30 p.m. on Sunday, January 14th at Fountain of Life Church, 633 West Badger Road, Madison. The 39th Annual City-County Observance will take place on Monday, January 15th at the Overture Center for the Arts in the Capitol Theater. The observance will include a Freedom Songs sing-along from 5.15 to 5.45 p.m., followed by a number of speakers from 6 to 7.30. The program will be broadcast live on WORT-FM. I'm Keith Steffen reporting for Labor Radio. Workers at Starbucks in Milwaukee have joined other Starbucks in organizing. Sean Hagerup has the details. Baristas at a Starbucks cafe located on the campus of Marquette University have announced their intention to unionize with Starbucks Workers United, joining a group of seven other locations in the state of Wisconsin who have also attempted to gain the union's representation. In addition to the cafes in Wisconsin, the Marquette Locations partners join a sweeping campaign that has unionized hundreds of locations across the country. According to More Perfect Unions, since 2021, more than 374 Starbucks stores in 43 states including Washington, D.C., have successfully joined Starbucks Workers United. The Marquette location, which is located at the corner of 16th Street and West Wisconsin Avenue, made the announcement late in December after a petition had been filed with the National Labor Relations Board. A letter sent to Starbucks CEO Laxman Narasimhan as a part of the partner's campaign announcement stated, quote, Our cafe has long provided a unique place for students, businesses, and community to gather in a space that is safe and respectful to all. Quote, unfortunately, the seams have split and we can no longer provide the service to our community due to gross mismanagement and mistreatment within our walls. End quote. The letter continued, quote, we cannot craft the Starbucks standard of beverages when our tools are in constant disrepair and the absence of necessary items is being ignored. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Sean Hagerup. Put a spell on you. Because you're mine. Stop the things you do. Letter carriers are increasingly subjected to attacks on the street, primarily to steal their master keys, called arrow keys, so that the assailants could get access to mail and checks. Keith Steffen has more information about how the National Association of Letter Carriers and United States Senators are responding. 
A complaint was filed Wednesday, January 3rd in Milwaukee County Circuit Court, accusing 14 men of participating in a pattern of racketeering activity from October 25th, 2022 to November 7th, 2023. The conspirators used firearms to intimidate U.S. mail carriers to hand over their master keys and then used the keys to steal mail from postal boxes. They stole checks and money orders and altered them to get cash or other things of value or sold them electronically. Nationwide, there were 423 postal workers robbed in 2022. That rate increased to more than 300 mail carriers robbed from October 1, 2022 to March 31, 2023, the Postal Service said. Over the past three years, assaults against postal employees delivering mail have increased by 231 percent. The National Association of Letter Carriers, or NALC, has been sponsoring rallies around the country since August to bring attention to the violence targeting letter carriers. Those rallies have been staged in Cincinnati, Compton, Oakland, Houston, San Francisco, Detroit, Aurora, Colorado, and Phoenix. On November 5th, another rally gathered in Milwaukee to call for a safe working environment for all letter carriers. The National Union did not participate in organizing the Milwaukee rally because postal employees were criticizing postal management, as well as attacks by the public. Workers describe a hostile work environment, wage thefts, and unfair disciplinary actions that they've faced for years. The employees feel they are not being treated with basic human dignity. They've had assaults on the street, and management does not always answer phones to deal with these and other emergencies. In addition, there have been instances of management altering clock rings in order to shortchange employees' wages. In response to the attacks, on November 29th, Senator Dick Durbin, Democrat from Illinois, and Senator Susan Collins, Republican from Maine, and 10 colleagues introduced legislation to address the armed robberies against postal workers. The Postal Police Reform Act would ensure that postal police officers may be assigned off postal property to offer protection to letter carriers on their routes. In 2020, under Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, the Postal Service issued a directive that restricted postal police officers to physical USPS properties. This directive has prevented postal police officers from protecting postal employees off of postal property. Prior to the 2006 Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act, which granted greater authority to the USPS to control postal law enforcement, Congress regularly granted postal police officers authority to carry out their duties both on and off USPS property through annual appropriations language. The Postal Police Reform Act of 2023 would counteract DeJoy's 2020 directive and again allow postal police officers to operate outside of postal service property. Durbin also called on the USPS to reduce incentives for mail robbery by requiring two-factor authentication on cluster mailboxes rather than relying on arrow keys that allow access to all mailboxes. The USPS has since followed that suggestion and has begun using two-factor authentication. On Sunday, January 7th, letter carriers in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and the national NALC have organized another rally to demand protection from violence and crime on the job. They encourage members of the public to join them at 100 South 1st Street in Minneapolis to call for safe mail delivery. I'm Keith Steffen reporting for Labor Radio. 2024 promises to be another big year for union gains. Frank Emspach has the story. There will be several important union contracts coming due this year. Union members expect to see the type of gains won by the UAW. 
Labor Radio spoke with Dan DiMaggio, an editor of Labor Notes, and asked him to outline the key contracts and issues in contention in 2024. So some of the biggest contracts that are up in 2024 include the machinists at Boeing, contract covering 30,000 Machinists at Boeing in Washington State expires in September. Daimler Truck Workers, their contract, which covers 7,000 UAW members at Freightliner and Thomas Built Buses, their contract expires April 26th. There's another big Hollywood contract firing. So it's the two the two main pattern setting contracts covering 60,000 film and television crew workers expire at the end of July. Two big postal contracts covering 300,000 postal workers across two unions. In addition to the contracts mentioned above, virtually every flight attendant union is in negotiation, some for years, as well as East Coast Longshoremen and two large teachers unions contracts, Chicago and Philadelphia. Strikes by either flight attendants or the East Coast Longshore have the potential to disrupt the entire economy if settlements cannot be reached. Well, the the UAW was clearly a game changer. It set a new standard. Of all these contracts that you see, which ones do you think have the potential for being that type of battle that changes the contours of their industry? The UAW contract came in a particular context of a a new reform leadership uh, at the international that, that was elected on a platform of no concessions, no corruption, and no tears. And we don't necessarily have those types of leaderships in charge at, at most other unions. Nevertheless, I think that uh, there are a lot of unions out there who are looking really to undo, at this point, decades of concessions and to, to achieve record-setting wage increases or at least wage increases that make up for the ground that's been lost to inflation in recent years to take advantage of a tight labor market and this, this newfound essential worker status uh, since the pandemic. But one big one that I would I would highlight is definitely the Boeing uh, contract, um, which is up for the first time in over 10 years. They are looking to achieve some pretty important stuff there, you know, along the lines of what the UAW was pushing for uh, at the big three, including winning 40% wage increases, which other aviation unions, including pilots, have won recently. Um, but also looking to restore the pension, which they lost uh, in the last round of negotiations in 2013, and seeking a commitment from Boeing to build its net- next jet in the Puget Sound. DiMaggio also emphasized another issue regarding Boeing. So workers feel like they have tremendous amount of power, and they're also extremely frustrated with how negotiations went down 10 years ago, when an agreement was essentially rammed down their throats by the Machinist International. Um, and they've they've made constitutional amendments since to make sure that that doesn't happen again. That they're they're going to be looking for to make up for what they lost. Do you see the type of reform movements that transformed the UAW and which resulted in a victory for the UAW happening in other unions? We're at a stage where union activists are are definitely looking around and looking to other reform caucuses as models. There's a little bit of a revival of the caucus impulse. I think people have seen that it's possible to win better contracts, but it really takes a push from below to 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 get the leadership to to mobilize the members, um, or it takes replacing the leadership to to wage the to the type of campaign it takes to win. 
So, so it seems like the ground is, is, is fertile soil for, for those types of efforts. That was Dan DiMaggio, an editor of Labor Notes, with his assessment of the coming labor battles in 2024. I am Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. The South Central Federation of Labor is revitalizing its education program. Greg Jaboski has the story. The South Central Federation of Labor, or SCUFL, is working with two of its committees to reach youth in the workplace. Labor Radio spoke yesterday to Izzy Bielek, an organizer for SCUFL, who described the initiative. The South Central Federation of Labor, or SCUFL, has various committees that are formed to kind of focus on specific aspects of labor. One of those is the Education Committee, which focuses on kind of any aspect of labor education. And it's composed of any of our union delegates who are interested in or maybe are actually working in the field of education. Another one that we've newly formed is the Young Workers Committee, which is comprised of either union members who are ages 40 and under or young folks who are in pursuit of a union. It's also open to other young folks who might be interested in getting into labor or getting into union organizing or learning more about that. Uh, but the fo- those folks that are not explicitly in a union or organizing for a union can't vote on any of the Young Workers Committee work that we do. Bielek hopes to greatly expand youth outreach. We're about to have our first meeting of the two to kind of discuss reaching out to more youth and actually younger folks. So typically, Young Workers Committee is made up of folks between the ages of 18 and 40, because those are typically the folks who are working full-time jobs, potentially, and are therefore union organizing. But something that we're all interested in is talking with even younger folks, folks in high school and middle school, and folks who are in college who might not be on the job market yet or have a job yet, but our students to kind of prep them for what the labor market looks like and also to potentially direct them toward union jobs or union organizing. At the university, Bielek sees potential follow-up to last year's Labor Spring. We helped with Labor Spring at UW, and I think that went really well. There was a lot of energy that was brought to us about trying to expand or continue on that through line of talking about labor on a college campus, showing students that they can be involved in labor organizing. Today's youth want unions, says Bielek. I mean, Young people today are the most interested and pro-union like ever. I think it's 88% of folks under 30 approve of unions in the United States. And so I think our overall goal is to harness that energy that we have and that interest and approval and actually direct it toward organizing and meanable action. Kind of one of our goals is to show that no matter what job you have, no matter who your boss is, you can unionize or you can be in a union. And actually, uh, you know, when you're picking your job, that's something that you can look for. That was Izzy Bielek of Scuffle. If you're an educator interested in getting the word out on unions, or if you're a young person interested in working for a union at your current or future workplace, contact Izzy Bielek or Scuffle President Kevin Gunlock. Contact information is on the About Us page on the Scuffle website at scfl.com. And you can jump right into a discussion of youth labor organizing at next week's Scuffle Movie Night, where Scuffle will screen the musical Newsies. That's next Thursday, January 11th at 6.30 p.m. in room 210A at the Labor Temple, 1602 South Park Street in Madison. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. 
To find out the latest on the status of Wisconsin's legislative maps, Labor Radio spoke to one of the parties involved in the lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of the existing maps. My name is Deborah Cronmiller. I am both the executive director for the League of Women Voters of Wisconsin and the chairperson for the Fair Maps Coalition in Wisconsin. Where are we right now with Wisconsin's legislative maps? We're in a good place right now. Just before the holiday, the Supreme Court of Wisconsin ruled in the favor of the plaintiffs in the case that was questioning whether or not the maps were constitutional. And the ruling was, in fact, the maps are not constitutional because too many of the districts in our current maps are not contiguous. In the ruling that the Supreme Court issued, they put forward a number of other items. One, they totally discarded that a lease change method for remedial maps, the new maps that will be enacted, should be used. They want to go back to the drawing board. They want the parties to submit new maps for consideration. They have authorized the hiring of two neutral consultants who will review all the maps. And there's a pretty tight tideline for all of this to happen. The defendant in the case, the Wisconsin Elections Commission, had informed the Supreme Court in their brief that if a remedial map was not approved by March 15th, there would not be adequate time to enact the map to be used for the August primary and the November election. Since the ruling, instead of doing what had been threatened by the attorneys at will, that they would bring this case to the Supreme Court of the United States, they took a different strategy to ask the Wisconsin Supreme Court to reconsider their decision. Our attorneys had until today to submit a response brief for that reconsideration. If they don't reconsider, then we'll probably move forward with exactly the same timeline that they had set out in their original decision. Why did the other side say that the Wisconsin Supreme Court should reconsider the case? It is my understanding that they were making the case that the analysis used by the Supreme Court was not an adequate analysis. Our attorneys at Law Forward have informed me that they think that the merits of the case were and are strong. They went into the Wisconsin Supreme Court with arguments that are based on our Constitution and our statutes. Our Supreme Court was to answer the question, are these constitutional maps? And using the Constitution as their focal point, they did decide, no, they are not. We think that the gerrymandered maps are preventing good government from happening in the state of Wisconsin. We've got elected officials who are choosing their voters versus the voters choosing their elected officials. And that's why we were party to the case to begin with. That's not how our government should work. That is not representative government. What can we expect going forward? I'm hopeful that the maps that are put forward for consideration will be fair maps, and we can test their fairness using a number of different methods that have been developed at universities across the nation. What can listeners do? Vote. A new map is certainly the end goal, but maps 
were based on partisan voting data that made assumptions. And those assumptions are that people who voted in prior elections will come again and vote and they'll vote the same way. If new people come and vote, or if existing voters become informed and they vote differently, that also would wreck the calculus of any man. That was Deborah Cronmiller. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Madison Labor Radio. Labor law did not change much in 2023. What will happen in 2024? Sean Hagrup has the story. 2023 was a banner year in labor actions across the country, with major contract negotiations occurring amongst unions like the WGA and SAG-AFTRA to the Teamsters in the UAW. Labor law, in contrast, did not see such significant shifts over the course of the year. Will 2024 bring more significant changes to the law that shapes our working lives? Labor Radio conducted a review of upcoming regulations and bills to see what might change this year. One proposal to look out for in this upcoming year is the question of the non-compete clause in employment contracts, which the Biden administration has made a core aspect of their efforts to reform competition policy in the labor market. The Federal Trade Commission issued a proposed rule to ban such clauses in January of 2023 and is expected to make a final decision in April of this year. Specifically, the change could prohibit direct non-competition clauses, as well as language that can be used to create a de facto non-competitive environment, such as requirements to pay back training fees if departing during a probationary period. The change would apply to most working arrangements, including volunteering, independent contracting, and traditional employment. Even if the rules do not change at the federal level, the Wisconsin State Legislature is also considering changes to state rules on non-competes and non-disparagement clauses. Assembly Bills 902 and 903, introduced earlier this week, could potentially nullify and prohibit such clauses in employment contracts at the state level if they are passed and signed by Governor Tony Evers. Other agencies have proposed changing long-standing regulations this year, including the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, in September of 2023, the EEOC released proposed enforcement guidance on harassment in the workplace, signaling that revised guidance could be issued as early as this year. Such guidance would be consistent with the EEOC's published strategic enforcement plan for the fiscal years 2024 to 2028 and would mark the first update on harassment guidance in over 20 years. New points offered in the guidance include definitions of harassment based on personal grooming, that is, hair textures and hairstyles commonly associated with specific racial groups, as well as preferred gender and sexual identity. Lastly, the Department of Labor is narrowing in on a long-awaited change to the rules that are used to determine whether a worker is an independent contractor or a full-time employee under the Fair Labor Standards Act. The stated aim of the rule change is to chip away at the country's ongoing misclassification crisis, which currently impacts over 2 million U.S. workers, according to a report by the Century Foundation. The new rule was proposed in 2022 in order to replace the current 2021 standard. The new standard would create a more holistic review process for classifying workers as employees or independent contractors, instead of elevating certain factors over others, as the 2021 rule has done in practice. The department submitted a final draft of the rule to the Office of Management and Budget late in 2023. While there is no set date on its announcement, the National Law Review indicated that the decision would likely be made this year. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Sean Hagerup. <laughs> Hey, hey, 
Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm William Rogerberg. Thanks to editor Frank M. Spack, assistant Robin G., reporters Greg Jaboski, Sean Hagrup, Janine Ramsey, Carol Weidel, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, outreach organizer Alice Herman, and to all of our readers and the members of the IBEW Local 2304WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Anna Ham. We'd also like to thank all of the generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Now stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts and the professor, Bill Clark. The misery was this woman and things. Now